0: Hello there. Hi, it's Charlie. This is the podcast to hell and back. And uh, this is uh, part two of a podcast that started in the previous episode uh, on autism and neurodiversity and DBT. Uh, Huge topics, you know, what can we do in two episodes? I mean, I I hope these will be useful to you and bring you into the conversation and uh, stimulate some thinking and some ideas. And some of you probably know a lot more than others about it. So we're just trying to cover a lot of territory. So um, feel free at the end to write me questions if you have questions about about this. I just want to remind you that this podcast, the hellenbach podcast, is something done in conjunction with or under the sponsorship of NEABPD uh, with all their amazing things they do, you should go to the website borderlinepersonality.org. Um, and uh, yeah, so th- I'm back this time with Amara Brooke, Dr. Amara Brooke, who's a clinical psychologist in um, the Bay Area in California, where I hope you're not deluged with too much rain. Those of us in the East read about your, your, your whole it's like California is being destroyed by weather or something like that. I'm sure it isn't as bad as they make it sound. But.
1: Well, there's some parts that are really suffering, but I'm lucky that right where I am is uh, not doing too badly. So
0: <laughs> good, good. OK, well, we had a really fascinating conversation last time. So if you don't know that, go back to the previous podcast. And uh, it's kind of an unstructured conversation where we're wandering around different topics within the world of autism and neurodiversity and DBT. So I hope that works for you. And today we're just going to continue because there was just a lot to talk about. And I'm sure there'll be more, you know, that we won't get to, but we'll get to what we can today. Um, And I'll just remind you that... uh, Amara is a, a clinical psychologist and a, has a private practice and where she does CBT she does has done DBT and DBT informed work uh, she does psychological testing she's been a professor um and uh, this has been a special area of interest to autism and neurodiversity and so I just I'm fortunate to have her to talk with it's deepened my own understanding of the topic which I've had an interest in but I haven't dug in as deep as I could. So I hope that's true for some of you. So Amara, I just want to welcome you back. And just, uh, I'm going to turn the reins over to you, though, that doesn't mean I'm going to totally let you go, because I'm going to be listening and asking questions as we go along. Oh, good.
1: <laughs> it's so good to be back, Charlie. And thank you for having me on the podcast. It's always delightful to talk with you. So hopefully it won't just be me monologuing for the whole time.
0: <laughs> oh, I'll, make, I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'll I'll, in, I'll probably interrupt you. I hope I'll apologize in advance. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. No worries. Um, so, you know, we were talking about neurodiversity, neurodivergence, autism. And I wanted to just maybe start out with those terms. I know we talked a little bit about that last time, mm-hmm. um, but just so we're being like specific about what we're talking about. Um, so neurodiversity basically refers to all different variety of how brains are wired. Um, so really like every, there, there's nothing really such as a neurodiverse client because like everybody is part of neurodiversity, like biodiversity, right? Like mm. everything biological is part of biodiversity. Mm. Mm. Every, every brain and how it's wired is part of neurodiversity, right? When we say neurodivergent, what we mean is a brain that is kind of functions differently than the usual typical way that we expect brains to function, that kind of social norms are based on, etc. right? So neurodivergent can include lots of different things. It could include we often think of autism or ADHD these days as you know, neurodivergent, could also include learning disabilities, um, you know, giftedness or intellectual disability. And a lot of people also talk about kind of what we would say acquired neurodivergence, which is kind of uh, differences in the way the brain functions that are based on not only biological inherited differences, but also life experiences. So it could include, borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder, PTSD, um, mm. you know any real difference in the way, we know that there are differences in the way brain, depression, right? There are differences in the way the brain functions with all of those things, right? So, um, I mean, today we're kind of talking about autism, but I just wanted to kind of define those terms a little bit. Sometimes mm. now people will say, oh, neurodiverse or neurodivergent, and really they mean like autistic or ADHD. Um, but really, the idea of like neurodivergent is much broader than just autistic or ADHD. Um,
0: but, but, but so, let me stop you right there. I'm just, well, and the question comes to my mind: Is there anybody who is not neurodivergent? The, I mean, the breadth of how you're describing this makes it sound like uh, all of us have different brains and.
1: I mean, I think if we defined, I'm not one who loves to privilege the medical model over other models, but if we looked at sort of base rate data on how many people have, you know, uh, personality differences, PTSD, you know, um, neurodevelopmental differences like autism and ADHD, Mm -hmm. that's not 100% of the population, right? Like a lot of people do have some mm. kind of something that's different about how their brain, you know, operates, if we, especially if we include like substance use, to, you know, um, differences and things like that. So sure, there's a lot of people who are neurodivergent in different ways, but we'll, we're not all neurodivergent in the same way, right? So I think that's really okay. important. And, and I think that does kind of like tie into um, something that I kind of really wanted to highlight, which is that Adapting DBT for autistic clients is really kind of part of a movement for adapting DBT to different neurodivergent populations or different um, cultural populations that it maybe wasn't initially completely designed for. Right? So DBT was you know, designed for um, chronically suicidal, self-harming women. You know, very tailored to obviously we all know for borderline for clients with borderline personality. Um, I'm going to sometimes be dropping the disorder part because I just really hate that word for re- re- applying to a lot of things. But anyway, um, so it's a, it, it was designed for a particular kind of neurodivergent population. Right. And we found that it's actually pretty helpful for a lot of other neurodivergent populations as well. Right. It's pretty helpful for bipolar folks. Um, it, it can be helpful for autistic folks, for you know, folks with ADHD. If we think of DBT as kind of self-regulation therapy or like emotion regulation therapy. Well, of course that applies to a, to a lot of people, right? But we might need to adjust some things about how we do it to best help those different groups that aren't the original kind of target population, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's really important to, from a neurodiversity affirming standpoint, we're not, autism itself is not the target, right? That would be like gay conversion therapy or trying to, you know, help, Um, Black clients act less, you know, less Black, right? Like none of Mm. us would do that, right? Because that would be like really offensive to say, I, you know, I'm targeting this core aspect of your identity, right? So Mm. that's not what we want to do for autistic clients either to say we're trying to like target your autism. But the reason I make that point is that because of the medical model labeling autistic differences as just these this collection of deficits, Very often I hear questions on, you know, in professional groups or from clients, well, what's the treatment for autism, right? Which is not, in my view, the right question, right? And the question is, how do we help autistic people live awesome, thriving, you know, lives to achieve their life worth living goals, right? And how can DBT be adapted to best help them do that, right? Right? Which is a really different question than so how, really, do, it's how, do really, we, how do how do we use DBT to erase their autistic differences, which A is impossible and B is really invalidating and harmful? No,
0: I just want to echo that that's a really that seems like an important distinction to me as somebody who's a DBT expert and who has adapted DBT for a number of different problems. Um, you know, let's say adapting DBT for people with addictions then the target of your treatment becomes to reduce the addiction. Right. Uh, and, and or the target of working with an eating disorder is to reduce the eating disorder behaviors. But you're saying there's nothing like, and I think that an, an, a natural DBT approach based on history would just be, oh, okay, so we have to target the autistic behaviors. And right. that, what you're saying is that's not, adapting DBT to autism is not to try to remove or reduce the autistic behaviors.
1: No. It's more like tardy. adapting DBT for use in Italy, where they speak a different language and a lot of social norms are different about communication.
0: Mm, right. right.
1: I mean, it's right. broader than that, but no offense to anybody who's Italian. No, I, no it, it is more like, a culture, more like a cultural and communication difference. Um, and, in right. and addition to the fact that there are some things in DBT that are closely connected to aspects of being autistic that may need to be really like mm. adjusted just because of differences and what it means to be autistic. But yes, it is about ad- adapting it to be a better fit for autistic people to accomplish their goals, whatever those goals mm.
0: are. Mm. Right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So somebody wouldn't come into DBT because they're autistic. They would well, come in, they, they would might. come in. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get at what you're saying, because right. so they, they might come in because uh, they're having challenges in their lives and they have goals in their lives uh, Bad, yes. like anyone else. And they're running into obstacles in their mm-hmm. lives. And then they have to do that um, from the core identity of being autistic. But they're they They might be trying to reduce anxiety. They might be trying to do, do any number of things right that other people would come to treatment for. Yes, or okay. figuring
1: out how to manage relationships, or how to communicate with other people about certain types of things that they're right. not sure how to communicate with them about. Um, so yeah, so we're not, you know, treat. This is not a treatment for autism, and I think that's that's a really important point. What I said mm. when I said they might, I think it's because a lot of the ways that you know people are the messages that people receive when they're diagnosed as autistic might be neurodiversity affirming, like, Hey, congratulations, you have this different neurotype. Let's learn all about it. Let's figure out how to, you know, mm. be able to, to live your life, or they might get a very medical model kind of pathologizing view of it when they're diagnosed. So people are, are very often given the message. And I think this kind of comes to another point, you know, there's this idea we talked about last time sort of ableism which is this idea that there's a correct normative way to be and everybody should act that way and everybody should be able to act that way and so a lot of times autistic people are given that message when they're diagnosed that like hey this is what you're supposed to be able to do and here's all the ways you're you're not you're like not able to do it and here's some recommendations for like you know, becoming, sometimes people will talk for, especially for children about, you know, successful treatment is treatment that makes them look less autistic. And that's very invalidating from, Mm -hmm. you know, a neurodiversity standpoint. And so that's why I'm saying, let's, let's not do that. Right. Let's, instead of saying, you know, how do I treat, Autism. Let's say, what do our assistant clients need? What are their goals, and how can DBT help them get to those goals? And are there some ways we need to adapt DBT to help them get to those goals, mm-hmm. right. Um, right? And if you don't mind, I, I have sort of a, like a little personal anecdote that I would love to share about um, just to kind of open this 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 part of the conversation. Sure. So many moons ago, and I'll share at this point. So, I myself am an autistic ADHDer, meaning um, I have ADHD and I'm autistic. Um, and I did not, I didn't, I did know. I've known for a very long time that I had ADHD since grad school, but um, the autistic part I did not know until more recently. Uh, we talked about that in the last episode of the podcast, by the way. If anybody is wanting more history about that, right. Um, but when I was first uh, in a tra- at a training site where I was learning um, a bit about DBT during my clinical training, um, the trainer pulled out this diary card. Which those of you who do DBT know that this is a usually two-page front and back, many fields, very structured. You have to rate things, you know, every day at least once a day, and track all the skills that you practiced. and uh, many folks with ADHD have a very hard time doing things, you know, that are structured and routine on a consistent basis. Um, and that's certainly true for me. And I also had lots of other overwhelming things going on in my life at that point. And I was just like, there, there's no way I could do that, you know, mm. every day. What's like, no, I cannot do 100 fields on a diary card. I'm probably exaggerating, but, you know, I can't, I just wouldn't be able to do that. So I asked, of course, be a little overly honest the autistic part, I asked the trainer and said, so what if somebody can't do that? Like, we're telling him, you have to be able to do this as a first step when they come in the door. What if they can't do this mm. every day? And it's like, well, maybe they're just not really ready to change. They're not ready for DBT." And I was like, then mm. I, the autistic part of my brain took that totally literally. Like, it never would occur to mm. me mm. that I could just tell a therapist, oh, yeah, I'll do it, even when I'm not going to be able to do it like i felt, honesty is like one of my big things so i would not be able to do that and also i literally when they said if you can't do this every day you don't belong in dbt or if a client can do this every day they don't belong in dbt like i took that literally and i was like this is a horrible injustice like this is this treatment you're telling me is for people who are incredibly dysregulated and the the gatekeeping is this like incredible daily regulation challenge for people who maybe aren't even consistently getting out of bed like this is just ridiculous like I was just really like I worked up about it and what I realized later years later when I had my intensive training with you Charlie is that this is part of our commitment strategies at the beginning of DBT, right? There's this um, technique called the door in the face technique. And this is right. funny. Because my original training was in social psychology. So I'm very familiar with all these social influence techniques. But the whole diary card is really a door in the face strategy to get people. We do want people to do diary cards because they're a helpful tool. But we expect that they're probably not going to really be able to be super consistent about doing them um so we say like okay well we need you to commit to doing this every day and with neurotypical clients like a problem a lot of them are probably like well i want to do dbt that's what they're saying i have to do sure i'll say i'll do it every day even if i probably won't right right right? but it's a like a barrier for an autism client who's going to go uh nope I'm not going to be able to do that. So you're saying I can't do this treatment. Now I've been rejected again, you know, from the treatment that's supposed to help for people who have, you know, had all this rejection trauma, right? Um, So I think we we need to think about ways that our procedures, that's just one little example, but might be received and processed and affect people differently depending on, you know, their different neurotype, right? And we know, and autistic people are not, you know, autism and ADHD are not the only examples of where we might need to do that, right? We might put, you know, uh, certain expectations or say things in certain ways that are not friendly to BIPOC clients, for example. There was a great... um, a presentation at the is it dbt conference this last December about various kinds of ways in which we say things and do things and expect things in dbt that are not a good fit for people from um you know BIPOC backgrounds um and mm-hmm. I, I'm not the expert on that but I'm just going to say that there's a lot of examples of this for different diverse populations and if we don't know a lot about autism or ADHD we might not know how we need to adjust it for um for these populations, right? So I think that's kind of part of the the take.
0: I, yeah, let me just add to that or comment on that. Um, I do think that DBT because it is um, it's it's sort of I this isn't to de- it's this isn't to uh, in any way diminish it. it. It's actually one of its strengths that it's sort of like a cookbook, but like a cookbook, you know, if a cookbook says well you're supposed to use this much butter, but you don't have butter. Uh, then you have to adapt, always adapt. And so I think when you when you offer DBT to somebody and and uh, who's an autistic person or somebody with other neurodivergencies or any or anything else that they just don't fit with it, I think the best response for a DBT therapist is to think, that's interesting. I wonder yeah. how that person works. Yeah. You know, rather than think, oh, that person should fit into my model. And if they don't fit into my model, well, it's on to the next person. Instead, it's sort of like, isn't this curious? I went, I had somebody once who had this kind of reaction to the diary card. She said, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to every day rate on a zero to five, how I feel in this way and this way. She said, I don't have zero to five. Mm -hmm. I said, well, what do you have? She said, maybe I have one, two, and three. Said, what would that be? She said, well, one is like miserable. Two is like terrible. And three is I want to die. I said, well, can you just write one, two, and three? Oh, absolutely. So hmm. we changed the diary card. Right. I, I, I apologize. My dog is barking. I'll be right back. It's okay. No problem. I, have to let, I have to open a door. Just one second. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Apologize. It's not good. Podcast <laughs> podcast protocol is no problem, uh, but I have a dog I'm managing. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. So I think that this and it's a it's a point you've made somewhere else, either something you wrote or something that you said already once. Is that when you when you have people that are so, maybe an autistic person and a and a so called neurotypical person, mm-hmm. and they're trying to relate to each other each one needs to know how the other functions. Not Absolutely. just one Not just one needs to adapt to the other, but actually there should be a, a learning process that goes yep. on, I would yep. think. And yep. I think that's the best model of DBT, but sometimes DBT's negative side effect might be to get a little rigid and think that someone has to, quote, fit into it yes. um, as if it's the way the world should work
1: yeah yeah I, I couldn't agree with that more um and I and I think your approach Charlie is um you know kind of principle driven and flexible and I think that combined with sort of humility about populations that we may or may not you know understand very well is, it's really important, right? I mean, I know mm-hmm. there's, there's other examples of adapting DBT, like there's one for like a whole book about adapting DBT for folks with intellectual disability, making it more accessible. Mm-hmm. I know there's been translation into many different languages and I would assume probably also when people are doing DBT in those cultures, probably other adaptations, depending on different cultural norms. Like a lot of East Asian cultures have very different cultural norms than mm-hmm. Western culture in terms of various types of social interaction and communication. Um, you know, like Italian culture is different in terms of like, you know, how much, uh, you know, emotion and enthusiasm and so forth is deemed as appropriate in different situations. Um, right. I think even looking at like, I've had, we're here in Silicon Valley, and we have a lot of, uh, shall we say quirky, because I don't know all what all their neurodivergences are, but like quirky gifted folks who are just like, really bright and so quick. And, you know, I've even heard complaints, like, oh, they're complaining about like, doing this, you know that the that we're spending like a whole um session of group on like this concept and you know some people like get it in the first five minutes like they may need more help with you know doing something else with it but it's the same kind of issue we have with you know children in classrooms where you know some kids need you know three class sessions on a concept and some kids right. get it in the first two minutes and it truly is not really a great service to them to be spending so long on it right, right. so
0: right this right. is
1: just this is one example of of you know being more flexible and adaptive with our use of dbt and i i will share that that's my in terms of clinically my big passion um and is helping adapt evidence-based practices for um you know, new problems or for diverse populations, that there's so much potential that's lost if we're just sort of taking a cookbook and not being willing to adjust at all, right? Like, as you said, not being willing to adjust for, I think of cooking at high altitude, for example, right? You have to adjust all kinds of different things. Mm, mm. You know, you have to have different equipment, like you might want a pressure cooker to be able to cook certain kinds of things, or I'm getting a little divergent here. (laughs) (laughs) um, There's, a lot of, you know, to be more flexible, but stick with the principles. Right. And, you know, I, I think that can be challenging, but it's also like, what a great, what a great adventure and ho- how much more effective for those clients who, you know, aren't exactly a fit to their original, you know, group, so to speak. Um, I think, um, you know, one thing that sort of came to my mind, Charlie, that I, I really would like us to be conscientious about, and I've seen some I see some comments from other clinicians that just kind of worry me about this. Like as DBT therapists, we are really trained to not um, be negative toward borderline clients because borderline clients are so typically, um, you know, stigmatized and complained about by other mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in many, many settings, it was shocking to me when I first went into clinical work, how pejorative people were toward, you know, borderline clients. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, sometimes I hear people talking a bit that way about autistic clients, or they'll just use a vague term like neurodivergent without or neurodiverse without somehow like defining it. Um, But sometimes it can feel like, well, we need to kind of complain to each other as clinicians or something, but we don't want to turn autistic clients or other neurodivergent clients into like sort of the new difficult clients who are just impossible or mysterious for us to understand because, you know, whatever it is that we're having trouble with that we haven't figured out is probably because of that thing, right? I think we want to kind of challenge ourselves to be, like you said, open and curious, and figure out what is um, what. What is the challenge here, right? What is this person's goal? What's getting mm-hmm. in the way of meeting that goal, right? If we just get curious and get empirical and um, do chains and you know things like that to try to just really notice what's going on, um, you know, I think that we can move beyond and maybe consult with people who are more familiar with these populations. Um, you know, we can. Um, do a better job of adapting rather than just sort of, you know, blaming the client, so to speak.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that, that that term neurodivergent, I think, in the DBT world is a relatively new term. I mean, maybe some people have known it for a while or known sort of what it was. And I mean, I when I in my DBT training life, which has been a substantial life for the last 30 years, these terms first started coming to my attention when I would do trainings in Sweden. And people there would be teams that came from Germany or from uh, the Netherlands. And they would want to talk uh, 15 years ago about ADHD for DBT and autism for ADHD. And and, and and in general, they would talk about neurodivergent populations. I hadn't heard the term yet. And so I think in America and in the DBT world in America, we're just digesting this term. So it's good that people are are listening in and thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? Because it can, it can become a wastebasket term for another stigmatized population if people aren't careful, is I yeah. think what you're saying.
1: I agree. Yeah. Um I think also, you know, we want to be, I think that I, I I sort of both love and hate the term neurodivergent. I think it gets sort of overused in a way that's very nonspecific, but also. It's good for us to realize, hey, you know, there's different ways that brains can differ. And for example, somebody who is both autistic and ADHD might be have some some significantly different needs from somebody who's um, only autistic. Although many many people who are autistic also meet criteria for ADHD, mm-hmm. um, you know. But when we get these unique combinations of you know um, different brain differences. know, it really behooves us to be curious about what that particular client needs in terms of adaptation of the treatment,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, rather than just kind of, you know, being rigid about a cookbook, or should we just come up with another rigid cookbook just for this, you know, this new population, and I would say no, because you're going to have, you know, different autistic clients, um, who have, you know, somewhat different needs, even though there's going to be some common threads, probably. and I think um, you know one thing that also brings up is uh, considering sort of barriers to autistic therapists. We talked about last time, and this comes back to your comes back to your point, Charlie, about the difficulties with cross neurotype communication, like with sort of an autistic and non-autistic person communicating. That's sometimes called the sort of double empathy problem. That it's not just that you know autistic people are not good at communicating, but it's that you know. Sometimes we call it allistic. It's kind of the word for non autistic. Um, Mm. You know, allistic people have difficulty understanding how autistic people communicate, and autistic people can have difficulty understanding how allistic people communicate. And for that reason, as we talked about last time, it can be really helpful, not only for, you know, all DBT therapists to better understand autistic people, but to really make sure that we are um, fostering and encouraging um, autistic DBT therapists to be able to. Um, you know, be part of our our therapist community and to work, you know, with autistic clients because it can really be easier in terms of communication. Um, But it does seem that there are some barriers to autistic, you know, therapists. Um, There can be barriers in terms of the training process, in terms of, um, you know, communication with supervisors, in terms of, you know, gatekeeping, in terms of admission to graduate programs, in terms of job interviewing process, which is extremely difficult in a variety of ways for many autistic people to kind of, because there's a lot of soft skill. I hear a lot of complaints about this in the tech industry where they're hiring for some position that has nothing at all to do with like interviewing or like, you know, schmoozing with people, but you have to get through that interview process to be able mm-hmm. to get at the door, even though it has nothing at all to do with your job performance. Mm-hmm. I realize that's a little bit different with DBT, but I just think we want to be Kind of careful in thinking about what these what these barriers are, Um and I, I mean I've heard I, I haven't done the Linnehan board of certification process myself, so I don't have personal knowledge. But I've heard that that process can be quite difficult for um, autistic therapists, and I think we just want to be really um, mindful. I think people there was some talk about that in that in that um talk. It is it DBT last December about barriers to BIPOC therapists, for example,
0: mm.
1: and. I think we want to be really um, mindful about barriers that might exist for autistic therapists as well, because it's you know obviously not good for autistic clients to not have representation from autistic therapists who might understand them better.
0: I don't know if you had something in mind specifically about this, Amara, but I, um, bef- um, what would be, for instance, a barrier that an autistic person would face in becoming a DBT therapist? Not You haven't been through the certification process, so for, leave that aside for the moment. But there are, are there certain things about the nature of doing DBT that would be especially challenging for an autistic person?
1: I think it but, depends on how it is framed to them. Um, I gotta say that when I, early on um, in doing DBT, I was on a team with somebody who was an autistic and some of the things that they would suggest in terms of, oh, you know, an autistic or sorry, a DBT therapist does this. Like you, you know, watch the body language of the client and then like, you like, um, you know, kind of adjust. And then if you like what they're doing, you kind of lean in and get all warm and kind of reinforce what they're doing. And if you kind of, you know, want to, you know, not, don't like it, you kind of lean out, you're a little more cold. And I was just like, what's like, there is no mm. way I. Did that because
0: Mm.
1: while I can naturally, I can be very authentic and very validating and interact, you know, really directly with that client. I'm very honest. I cannot monitor, you know, what's going on in terms of their body language and then strategically adjust my own body language, like in the moment Mm. to kind of, Uh, give that kind of feedback on what they're doing in a strategic kind of way like that just isn't you know but I also realized although I was told that that is not necessarily the only way that you can do dbt right like I've had really successful courses of dbt with a number of clients and I don't do that right so I think part of we need to be careful about the messages Mm -hmm. we're sending to um therapists about like, you know, DBT is only something you can do if you just are naturally super, um, you know, skilled at like reading and responding non-verbally to nonverbal communication. I, I think that's nonsense that that's the only way to do DBT. But if we were, if we give messages like that, especially when people are at formative stages of training, um, I think that's something that can be, um, really discouraging, right? Mm-hmm. like it certainly um, it certainly hurt my own self-confidence too mm-hmm. you know, at that point and it was before I kind of got to a more like self-accepting like hey, I do this differently and it's okay that I do this differently. It's not wrong even though it's different, right um, but I think we need to be careful about those messages that we're sending. I think depending on people's neurodivergences there can definitely be de- barriers, like I said to things like even, Um, you know, getting into grad programs. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is the outsized importance of like letters of recommendation and things like that. And the whole process of like getting into colleges, getting into grad schools, getting into, um, you know, internships and postdocs and, and things like that. I mean, I was just I didn't realize it at the time because I didn't know I was autistic, but there were a lot of times when we were looking at, like when I was in grad school, I would be like on the admissions committee for our grad program and then there'd be candidates. I'm like, oh, they're so interesting. And, you know, sometimes people would just be like, oh, we don't, we just kind of want the cookie cutter. Like we want, and I saw this even more so in like clinical training programs when I was involved mm-hmm. in like admission to the, or selection for the internship program that I was in, I was like, Oh, this client, they look so amazing. and so interesting and different. And Mm. nobody wanted interesting and different. They just wanted like easy, like they wanted, you know, students who were kind of like other students they're used to, right. So I think sometimes there's just that kind of, oh, we don't want to be bothered with anybody who's sort of different and is maybe going to think about things differently and make waves. And I'm sure nobody's thinking, we don't want autistic or ADHD, (laughs) you know, clinicians, but that's kind of what's happening if we're just sort of selecting for a neurotypical norm, which unfortunately, I think selection processes for jobs, grad programs, you know, internships, etc, are often very much selecting for a really typical, easy kind of, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you see that in your experience, but.
0: you know, I'll tell you one thing in, in my experience was that I've had a couple of people come to me for supervision. They specifically because they feel like they've mastered part of DBT. And I, I, I I'm not, these are not not people who've, who are self-identified autistic, but maybe have some of the characteristics that I would, I would imagine could be the case and came to me because specifically one of them was so, was so, um, touching, actually. And he was so open and vulnerable, because he said, um, you know, I think I've gotten really good at the part of DBT that's CBT. I think I can think in a linear way. I think I understand change. I think I know how to conceptualize a case. I think I know how to do all of this, you know, might be the technology of DBT and understanding people that way. But you know, sometimes I see when you teach or when I've seen videos of you that you you're kind of like a little more improvisational and a little more fluid and flexible. And I just wonder how I can get there. And that was the focus of the supervision. And it was very interesting because it was a man who was a musician as well. And so we used his musical qualities as a as an analogy but it just I' I'm, I'm not saying that he was autistic but I I do think he came at learning DBT to be a therapist and he cared deeply about learning it well and he was uh, he obviously cared deeply about his clients um mm-hmm. but he felt a little like um he, trouble just sort of moving in the moment you know like changing the way you were saying like how am I going to coordinate my uh view of this other person's nonverbal nuances with my nonverbal nuances and make it all work. Right. And, and uh, I think some people don't need to think about that so much. And some people that isn't, that's not their natural go-to place.
1: Right. Uh, And I, I would take that as, as an opportunity to kind of point out that like sometimes those differences might actually be a better fit for some clients. Right. So I, one of the things I wanted to like throw out was some, ideas about, you know, adapting DBT for for autistic clients um, Mm. and not necessarily, you know, by no means comprehensive, right? But one of the things that a lot of autistic clients like is for there to be more structure, right? Like the client doesn't necessarily (laughs) very much enjoy the sort of free flowing thing either, right? And also the client might not be reading nonverbals or at least not reading them in the way that you expect. So it could turn out if you're working with the right clients, that actually the fact that this person loves chains and like loves structure and loves, and I'm not saying DBT is equivalent to CBT, but having more structure and, you know, having more directness and having less of this sort of free-flowing thing might actually be a better fit for some clients. Like a lot of autistic clients actually prefer that, right? So I think we want to be careful that we're not kind of having, um, you know, we're not conveying a norm about how DBT has to be done in a way that is appealing to, you know, non-autistic clients and non-autistic therapists, but not accessible to either autistic clients or autistic therapists.
0: Right,
1: right. That's Um, a good point. Yeah. Um, And, So one other thing, Charlie, I know you wanted me to mention the the biosocial model, just because it seems really relevant to both, you know, autistic folks experience as well as something that most um, DBT therapists are very familiar with. Um, And I'm probably going to totally skewer the model, but, you know, the idea being that some people are just coming to this world like naturally more sensitive and maybe emotionally reactive and things like that. In a way that other people around them does not necessarily understand and t- t- tend to invalidate, um, often unintentionally, and that that leads to a whole lot of trauma and sometimes sort of unhelpful like behavior patterns um, because that person's trying to get their needs met in an extremely invalidating world. Exactly. Uh, right. And I think one thing that was striking to both you and me, Charlie, is how much autistic people are chronically invalidated throughout their lives, right? Like that's true for um, borderline clients. It's also possible for autistic folks to get so invalidated and in a sort of classic biosocial model type of way that they end up also um, being borderline, um, you know, at some point. Um, But even if we just look at like autistic clients, like a lot of autistic clients view the world very, very differently from the world around them or from the people around them, right? I mean, there is a strong genetic component. So, actually, what I often see in testing is that you have like parents who aren't aware that they also are autistic and they're bringing in their kid. And then they think that the things the kid is doing that are very different from typical beha- child behavior are typical because that's what they did when they were a kid or that's what mm-hmm. their other kids do because there's like, because it's so strongly, you know, not 100% genetic, but pretty strongly genetic. Um, but also, you know, the problem is at some point the kid encounters a world that often is very invalidating. So let's say, I mean, often sometimes it's the family that's unintentionally invalidating because the family is different from the child and the family doesn't understand why the child is having a big reaction to certain sensory stimuli or to social situations that are not bothersome to other members of the family or things mm-hmm. like that, right? So that it can happen at the family level. Um, yeah, honestly, in my experience, even when you have multiple autistic people in the same family, that does not mean they're going to have the same experiences. Um, so you might have somebody who's sort of hypersensitive to sound and somebody who self-stimulates to get their sort of sensory needs met by making various sounds, right? That can be like a, a challenging mm-hmm. situation that mm-hmm. can happen in PT groups as well, by, by the way. Um Or you might have, you know, just, you can have differences where one person just doesn't understand the other, right? And then children often go out and then they're in, in like, school systems. And school systems very much expect people to just behave according to a neurotypical norm, right? And that can be very, very difficult um, and very invalidating. Um, People often learn... You know my uh, my experiences, my needs like don't matter, and they're somehow wrong because they are not like what I'm being told that I have to do at school. Um, so I think the biosocial model is really relevant in that there's a lot of trauma that autistic folks experience by being chronically invalidated throughout their lives, right? And that's um, you know similar in some ways to I think what well,
0: and I and that. I think and I think one outcome with um... The biosocial model with borderline personality disorder is that you you end up with uh, kind of extreme solutions to ordinary developmental problems. So by that I mean, you know, you need help. So mm-hmm. what do you do? What do you do to get help? Well, you learn to shut down and not ask for help. Mm-hmm. And then you and then you fall apart and then people help you. And yeah. so you learn this pattern which mm-hmm. DBT therapists are familiar with. But yeah. I think that. You know, there's um, I I just assume that with the biosocial model, if you if you're give if let's let's say this is the. what Linehan would often say is there's but what are there's two things in the world there's the brain and there's the environment. That's she's. I remember her teaching that a lot. Like there's just the brain and the environment. Of course, there's the body too, and there's all these other people. But there's basically when you're trying to figure out behavior, there's the brain and the environment, and and sort of the There's a lot of givens that you already have at a given moment. You have a lot of givens. Maybe you have autistic givens. Maybe you have sort of emotional reactive givens. Mm-hmm. And then 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 what happens in the environment? is what determines what happens next. So the given isn't necessarily the problem. The given, the fact that you're emotionally sensitive and reactive could be a wonderful thing, could be an okay thing, doesn't compromise your life. However, that package inside the wrong environment that doesn't fit, it turns into a nightmare. And I, I just assume that with autism, that you have a certain package of givens that are of a sensory nature, of a communication nature, of a all the things that you've talked about last time too and and then what environment do you put that in yeah. determine determines everything in terms of the next step right yeah does I
1: an mean, that... environment fit question is super important and I, I think this is just a really important point that like autistic clients especially ones who are diagnosed when they're children or maybe even if they're not diagnosed in their children they're often given the message that like what you have to do is just fit into the like social norm. And of course, like everyone to some extent, I mean, hello, social psychology, right? Like everyone to some extent receives that message that we all just sort of have to fit into the social norm, but Mm. it's much more difficult and yeah, and sometimes impossible for autistic people to do that, right? Or for ADHDers to do that. Or we hear a lot about how that's not really feasible for, you know, some BIPOC folks for whom the sort of, you know, white typical norm is not a good fit and not appropriate Mm -hmm. to expect Mm -hmm. them to fit into, right? Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: for especially like for, you know, autistic children or just, you know, children in general, we expect them to just go into school or whatever environment and just conform and just do things exactly a certain way. And, um, you know, Therapies, a lot of times autistic children, unfortunately, get funneled into ABA, which often has a very invalidating goal of getting rid of these autistic behaviors, sometimes even, and often, and historically, even behaviors that are completely non-harmful, right? It's one thing to target something like cutting or something like that. It's another thing to target something like um, stimming that's completely harmless, right? but just because we want to make this child look and be able to pass as being neurotypical, right? It's really, really harmful. Sometimes even the therapies that people are like funneled into, especially for children, can be really, really invalidating and increase the trauma significantly,
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. which is why there's been a major pushback against ABA from the neurodiversity affirming.
0: Oh, is that right? That's that's a major pushback. Yeah. Yeah, I could see why. But when you said, by the way, when you s- just said stimming, could you say to people what you what you mean to, if sure. if they don't know if they haven't come across that term or they've heard it but they don't know what you mean?
1: Yeah, so a lot of uh, autistic people, but also to some extent, you know, folks with ADHD um, will engage in certain behaviors in order to. Um, kind of regulate their um, emotions and regulate their sensory system. Sensory differences are a big thing um, with autism. And sometimes that's hypersensitivities where we're more sensitive to certain things like mm. you know, sound or, or smells or textures or things like that. And sometimes it's you know hyposensitivity, like having less sensitivity to certain sensations. And so often people will um, engage in certain behaviors like you know, movement or making certain sounds repetitively, or, um, you know, people might think of stereotypical things like hand flapping, um, or, um, Mm. rocking, you know, that, um, people will do to give themselves that sensory input that helps either, you know, up-regul- upregulate themselves or downregulate their energy, depending on what they need to do, or just even cope with kind of a stressful situation.
0: Mm. So, mm.
1: you know, what we've, what used to be the the thinking was, well, those are weird, we got to get rid of them. But what they've actually learned a lot more now that we've had more input from, you know, occupational therapists and others who are focused on sensory integration and things like that, that, um, this, these self-stimulatory or stimming behaviors are actually really adaptive and they help people be able to cope with situations that mm. might otherwise be difficult for them. Mm. Uh, of course, sometimes there can be, you know, differences in, uh, you know, different people's needs and trying to figure out how to balance those out, right? And sometimes we have to sort of problem solve and Um, I would say, again, I'm plug occupational therapists. They can do, they can be really helpful in this, helping people figure out how do I get my sensory needs met in a way that's kind of works okay in the environments that I'm in, um, or to preemptively get my sensory needs met by maybe, you know, doing something ahead of time before I walk into a situation that's going to be stressful so that my sensory system and my energy system is better regulated. Um, but these, the differences are uh, they're one of the criteria for autism but they're also just very central to the autistic experience and punishing stimming behaviors is really invalidating for autistic folks and unfortunately mm-hmm. i mean i see that in IEP goals you know the child will you know have quiet hands or something instead of doing whatever they're doing with their hands mm-hmm. while you know, mm-hmm. learning and um there's some great resources i actually just went to a talk yesterday about the fabulous folks at autism level up with it, which is an organization that helps um, with various kind of self-regulation tools and strategies for autistic folks um, and they have some great resources about kind of helping figure out like what what does my body need to do in a particular environment and like how do I get my needs met and um, just really really terrific stuff and that you know even kind of helping, uh, educators reframe what is uh, you know what does it look like when somebody's learning well that's a different answer for lots of different people right we sort mm-hmm. of sort of a teachers think if they're looking at me and they're they're not doing something else that means they're learning but that's not necessarily true right some kids need to not be looking at you to not be distracted by eye contact or the visual stuff that's going on it's right? interesting
0: you say that i was just thinking about One in the very first DBT skills group I ever did, which was in a hospital in New York there. And and I did a a group in a day hospital there for a while. And the first session, everybody came in and sat in a circle the way you're, quote, supposed to sit in a circle. Right. Everybody faces each other. The chair. Nobody said to do that. Everybody knew to do that except one person. And that one person came in and turned her chair 180 degrees around and faced the wall. And she wore sunglasses, and she had hair coming over her eyes. And she's just sit there looking at the wall. And I I didn't, I thought, Marshall Linehan, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what what, is she violating DBT? Is this a problem? And I just thought, well, I guess it doesn't seem like it's a problem until it becomes a problem. So let's play this out. And then other people in the group said, Charlie, do you notice that she's not facing the group? I said, oh, yeah, I noticed she's not facing the group. Well, mm-hmm. shouldn't she? And then she didn't want to speak when it was her turn to speak. I'd go around the room and ask things. She wouldn't speak. And so it was a real learning experience because I just decided, and I talked with my team in between sessions, like, okay, who knows? One of the team members said, maybe she's learning more than everyone else. Who knows? You yeah. know? And it turns out, like, I'd say it took about six weeks. She never spoke. She just faced the wall. She had the sunglasses on in a perfectly well-lit room. And um, and then she came in one day and she just faced in the group. And she sat there and she answered questions. She kept the sunglasses on. but And it became perfectly clear that she had learned everything that everyone else had learned. And it was just sort of like, oh, it was a real wake-up call for me to realize that, all right. I mean, not, not that you would have had to do anything there, but it's just clearly people enter social situations differently and and, and what in- I
1: love is that you like you were curious about it you're like oh I wonder what's going on here right you weren't just like well other people are trying to enforce this sort of social norm so I'm just going to make mm-hmm. her do it and like Consider they're looking at the looking at the way at the wall or wearing sunglasses or you know not speaking to be a therapy interfering behavior like
0: mm, it clearly wow. wasn't
1: for her she was learning better you know she's learning just fine that way right yeah, it, we assume if it's a nail that stands out it needs to get pounded down it's a therapy interfering behavior yeah 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 and that's a really non affirming assumption that can actually interfere with a lot of you know either group members or children in schools or whatever learning. maybe they just need to be doing something different to learn.
0: Amara, what is it with 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 children and and teenagers and young adults but especially I'm thinking of children right now, what is it that gets people to tease or make fun or bully or mistreat mm. uh, a child that presents as autistic like it's it's like they're not doing wow. anybody any harm what? What is it? And what makes them be end up being called weird or made fun of by other kids, or or even by teachers?
1: Wow, that is a gigantic question.
0: I know, and you you can bypass can it. I, if do, you can want. I
1: cheat and say social psychology? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my PhD. I actually originally my PhD is in social psychology, and I respecialized the clinical later. So this is like very close to my heart. And, and personally, I study it because I don't really understand it, but, I, you know, be, there's actually a sort of joke in the research world that people study what they don't understand, like, the, <laughs> but um, yeah. for good reason. Uh, but, you know, generally, human cultures try to, you know, get people to conform to a group norm. Like, that's true in lots right. of different groups. And... Right. It's also true that they've done they've re- recently re- replicated some classic social psych experiments and showed that like autistic folks don't conform to the norms or to social pressure in the way that you might normally expect. Mm. And really these studies seem to always frame that as a bad thing even when it means that the autistic people act more ethically and things like that. But um, mm. but you know typically the typical social thing is, um, you know, people in general are pressured to conform to whatever the group, is doing. And groups, unfortunately, in my view, um, tend to reject people if they don't conform to the norm. And so Mm -hmm. there's just this like massive pressure toward conformity. And I think that's one reason that to get sort of celebration and acceptance of diversity, that we have to sort of consciously decide to do that because otherwise people just look at what people, what people do with their news consumption these days, right? They get it from, you know, whatever source they already agree with. People like to have their worldview confirmed. It's more comfortable. People right. like to hang out with right. other people that are like them. You know, I would say children learn a lot of messages, not only from, you know, other children, but from like their parents about, you know, what's, you know, what's good and what's weird. And I'd say children actually often, this is the developmental thing, they become, enforce they're usually pretty accepting when they're really tiny and then they sort of start to become aware of social norms and they become these really rigid enforcers really rigid intolerant enforcers of social norms so in sort of like late preschool and elementary school and then you know if they are um encouraged to be accepting of diversity and and things like that then they start to become more um accepting and uh you know, kind and, and so forth as they get older, but they're sort of a, I mean, there's a reason why Lord of the Flies is a classic. I mean, you know, sometimes in that sort of those late, early childhood years, you kind of, like, kids are learning about power and about, you know, mm. enforcing norms and things like that, but they don't have any subtlety about it, and they don't yet know, like, you know, when it's appropriate to be kind and accepting and, and things like that. So it can be a really brutal world, but that's also not to say that adults are always nice either. I mean, a lot of times people feel pretty okay about just being mean to somebody because they are, you know, rejecting them because they're not typical. Like I said, I saw that all the time and selection processes for like clinical training programs and things like that, which I found very disheartening. So um, but but, it,
0: but I, my understanding is that, uh, so please build on this, but aut- autistic kids or autistic people uh, work very hard in their lives yes. in order to fit into the conformity, in order to fit into the norms. And that that actually is, is uh, what they do in order to adapt, but it also violates something about that because they still are who they are. Absolutely. Right?
1: Well, I think it's it's hard for any, you know, person who the more different somebody is from the typical norm, the more of a burden it is for them to fit into that typical norm. Right. Mm -hmm. And for autistic folks, there's lots of ways in which autistic folks are different from the typical norm. And what's typically been encouraged and what many autistic folks have done because of intolerance. Um, you know, this is true for other populations as well, right? Like we used to have, you know, being gay is disordered in the DSM and, you know, thankfully we don't anymore. Um, but there's been all kinds of things that were like, that's weird. That's atypical. So we're going to label it with our, it's wrong sort of label. And unfortunately autism, you know, aside from the neurodiversity, um, affirming movement sometimes is, is still seen that way. Right. Um, and so if you're, the more different you are from the norm, the more of a burden it is to try to, you know, pretend like you fit that norm To And with autism, there's so many things about everyday social communication that are different, right? If eye contact is excruciatingly difficult or distracting, it can really take away from learning and really take away from, you know, take a lot of your energy um, to try to force yourself to do that, right? If um, unstructured social situations are very difficult for you, it can take a lot of energy, you know, to try try to navigate those types of situations. And what we're learning is it's actually really harmful for folks to have to pretend to be somebody they're not all the time, right? Like Mm. it's one thing that, of course, there's some situations where we just have to have very appropriate behavior, right? Stereotypically say meeting the queen, I guess now it would be meeting the king, but, you know, situations where you just like sort of suck it up for a little brief period of time to just, you know, have the appropriate behavior. But if you're spending so much of your life doing that, if you're having to do it at home and mm. in school and mm. in social situations, right? How do you even know who you are? Because you're just like, you know, wearing a disguise all the time, right? You're like mm. acting like somebody you're not. And it's, it's exhausting It breathes lots of shame, right? So there, that's why now there's a lot of um, emphasis on like the, the problems associated with masking, um, which is kind of honestly the same as neurotypical conformity, which we would talk about in social psychology. It's just much more costly for autistic people to mask because it is so hard and so exhausting and so unsustainable. And it leads to things like, like I said, shame and, you know, it's like kind of falling apart. Like after, like sometimes the kids will come home from school and they will just completely fall apart because they've used like all of their available, self-control, you know, to be able to cope with all the noise and busyness and social stuff and, you know, frequent transitions during the school day. And then there's just nothing left, like it's just not, and then they can't be, you know, well-regulated when they get home because they've unsustainably used up all their ability at school. Right, right. Or for adults, you know, it happens in lots of situations, people will come home from work and then not be able to, just really do any of the other activities of life because maybe they they held it together at work, but they are, you know, completely shattered when they get home. So a lot of us part of what we there's this difference in kind of there's always in DBT the dialect of, of acceptance and change. Right. Like, what do I need to accept because I can't change it? And what do I what do I want to change? Right. But mm-hmm. autistic people have, have often been recipients of the message and often internalize that ourselves, that we need to change all of these things that are unusual in order to be more typical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything, we feel like everything needs to be changed, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I need to be able to, you know, behave perfectly in all of these situations all the time and have, you know, and it's just not realistic it's not sustainable and people end up in what we call like autistic burnout which i no. suspect a lot of autistic people come into dbt at that stage where they're just almost barely functioning because they have so overdrained their energy tank trying to like live up to all these shoulds i mean ableism is really no, just-
0: i have so I have, I have so let me mention a, a client that i've had who has said that she spent so much of her life masking in the way that you say to try to fit in and and so conscious of it so much of the time that she wondered what do you do what are the skills as she put it since she's in dbt skills group at a certain point what are the skills in dbt or anywhere to teach you to Um, now figure out who you are as an authentic self if you're with a group of people when you've spent your entire life being something other than what your authentic self is. And so now you don't even know what your authentic self is. And there you are standing with a bunch of people not knowing how to be. I mean, I, I wonder how you would address that from the perspective that you have.
1: Right. I mean, I think what one thing would be to be extremely curious about, you know, what their experience has been like to really listen to and validate that experience of having mm-hmm. to sort of hide and not be themselves all the time mm-hmm. to find out what that's what that's like for them, what kind of costs it has for them. And then to kind of, you know, where I think one skill that's really helpful for sort of figuring out one's authentic self, well, first of all, having it just validated, this is a, definitely a role that DBT therapists can play validate that it is totally um difficult to mask all the time it's totally exhausting and of course how would you know who you are if you're just having to play this role all the time Mm. and you know I wonder if it might be helpful to you know practice mindfulness around different types of situations and activities just to try to figure out like when do you feel what feels effortless and great and what feels you know, super draining and what feels joyful and what, you know, and also a lot of autistic folks struggle with right recognizing emotions. So it might be more what feels like it gives you energy versus what feels like, you know, it just drains your energy, but whatever it is kind of practicing and really validating the, again, validation, validation, right. To counteract that chronic invalidation mm. that, um, you know, that, that process of discovery about like what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Right. And it doesn't mean again, that we never do anything that's uncomfortable, but there's a difference between doing things that are uncomfortable occasionally, because it's somehow really important to fit your goals versus, you know, all the time, expecting yourself to always do whatever it is that makes other people comfortable, no matter how it affects you. Mm. Right. Like trying to figure it, help them figure out that, you know, what their goals are and, and their preferences and, you know, their, where their dialectic of acceptance and changes around various different, you know, things that they bring in. I think it's a really good point though, because many of us like have such internalized, we just taken all those social norms and just said, well, this is what must be all the time. Right. And we yeah. maybe bring in even goals that are just just something that somebody else gave us in terms of criticisms or shoulds, and like we really need non-judgmental help exploring what is realistic for us.
0: I'm just trying to think. You know, I was. You said something in our first podcast together that you. I, it went by very quickly, but it stuck in my mind. Was that you? You went through a process like this as a kid. And that there was a certain point, I think you said around fourth grade that you met someone else who was who maybe was autistic or neurodivergent in some way. Neurodivergent
1: in different ways, but in, you know, in different ways. And, ways. <laughs>
0: but she became a good friend and has remained your best her your best friend okay. in life. That's sort of okay. like I was really so struck by that. That it must have been, I mean, it's partly you you need to find when you're try, masking all the time and you're thinking you're not doing it right and you you've got to keep paying attention to it all the time so exhausting it must just be liberating to be with somebody where you don't have to be that way there because they also aren't doing it so i would think that whether you're a therapist when you say a therapist validate i think validation of this nature really requires uh letting yourself uh, it's not just verbal validation there's some way that you are actually indicating, you know, you are genuinely okay the way you are. Yes. I, I'm just so curious about who you are. And then, Absolutely. and then kind of like, oh, it must just be a relief to yep. um, have that happen. And,
1: and, and to totally validate that people may want to socialize in ways that are different from a typical norm. Maybe their idea of fun is you know, going and, you know, doing a structured activity, doing something, a Mm. lot of us, people have an easier time socializing related to their intense interests. So, you know, Mm. in more structured activities. So for some people going to like, you know, game nights or more structured types of, you know, like a cooking class or just whatever is related to their passionate interests, which by the way, could be anything really. Right. Right. can be a much more easy and much easier way for them to socialize and connect. Um, I mean, I thought it was so funny when of course this is kind of stereotypical. When my kids were little, there's a train station near us that has a train museum and we went and, and all the volunteers at this train museum. Man, they're mo- the most awesome bunch of autistic guys who keep this place running. And you know, <laughs> all are like, I bet, I really bet. enjoying it. And I know trains are like the most stereotypical thing, but it doesn't have to be that, right? It could be <laughs> right. a club focused on any kind of interest that is yours. You know, a lot of times I'll say, get yourself a structured role in the club, right? Like, be the club, you know, I don't know, like, how, be the club secretary or something, just so that you have like a Structured role that gives you an excuse to get to know all the other people who share this interest that you have. Uh-huh. Right. Oftentimes, autistic people are extremely good at connecting with other people who also share the things that they're really passionate about. Right. One characteristic of being autistic usually is having some incredibly intense interests. Um, and there's nothing at all wrong with that. That often leads to people's, you know, great works of art, like to people's careers, to, you know, the other people they're connected with. Um, I actually. I think one of the reasons I I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to just typical social norms, like even my parents were part of an interest-based, you know, community when I was growing up and like everybody that they were friends with was like pretty passionately into the same interest. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of neurodivergence and that's why they all got along fabulously, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's not inferior to do that versus to go to... I mean, a lot of neuro, where I see neuro neurodivergent client, or let's say autistic clients running into some difficulties, like if they try to go to say neurotypical mixers, right, let's say they're single and they want to meet people. So I'm like, oh, I'll just go to a mixer. Well, the mixer oh, is like oh at a God. bar and bars are loud and bars are unstructured. And there's like, no, you know, like, well, is that really going to be the best place to meet people or
0: yeah,
1: yeah. figure out like, what are you most passionate about? Is there a, you know, this is one good thing about being online, because even if you're into something that there isn't a lot of in your local area, now I say right,
0: right, right, it is
1: easier if there's other local people who are interested in something, but if there isn't, you know, you can meet people maybe online who are, and there's nothing inferior about online relationships, by the way, that is like one thing that really, I think, mm see so many parents who are like, well, my autistic kiddo, well, they do have friends that they do XYZ with online and they even chat with them and blah, blah, blah. Oh, right. but those are only online friends. We need them to go like, I don't know, to go to the school dance so they can have like in-person friends. And it's like, who decided that that's, you know, superior to have yeah. in- friends or, I mean, not to say that we shouldn't have any, but, or to just have like, Friends who don't share really any interests with you, like actually, social psychology would tell us people like other people better in general who share interests with them. It's just it's stronger for autistic people. Why not? I go think it's with
0: a them? it's a really good message, and and I'll I'll stick with this in my own practice because I'm thinking one of the five functions of DBT when you become a DBT therapist, the the five essential functions that you need to accomplish in treatment, one of them is called structuring the environment. And Mm -hmm. I think there, it's sort of like, how do you help each person find an environment and even create an environment, even be ruthless about creating an environment in which they can function, they can succeed, and they can be reinforced? And so you're saying that finding that environment for somebody who's autistic might really be going in some of the directions you're talking about now. And it might not be what they think is socially acceptable. Yes, yes. So you need to...
1: And I think we, you know, I can sort of share a little, when I first was, you know, learning how to do DBT from the therapist end of things, I was just, my mind was blown when I encountered like Dear Man and Give. I was like, wow, there's actually, no, I know some autistic people don't love those skills because they feel like they're just encouraging masking. But I felt like, wow, when I need, wait, there's a way to advocate for myself that I'm not just going to get like, you know, criticized for being like, too direct or too rigid or you know what all these nasty things that they say to autistic people a lot of times we get all this criticism for um you know for having advocated for ourselves maybe when we were little or at earlier stages in our careers and so we just kind of we start just trying to you know just go to be Gumby, right, to be like totally flexible, but then that Mm -hmm. doesn't get our needs met, And we know as DPT therapists, that's not sustainable, right? You always need to figure out like, what do I need to advocate to change? What do I need to keep the same, right? And there may be a lot of things that we need to advocate to change but maybe we didn't know a way to advocate that like other people would be more easily able to hear but i mm. first found the structure especially in like dear man i'm like oh i can write this out ahead of time and yeah, like, right and right, then right, i can right, right. And throw in some validation here and there and ask them about their interests and oh that i've got give right like it was just so awesome that there was like a structured way to do this so i i love your idea of more emphasizing like structuring the environment because I think a lot of the punishment that autistic people receive when they're younger and maybe when they were a courageous kid and when they were more outspoken, not all of them are like that, but um, I see a lot of autistic kids who they really started out being super courageous um, and then they got kind of, you know, pounded down and, you know, um, punished for doing that and they get this message that I must just always be perfectly flexible to what other people need and then they can't advocate for themselves and the need in the way that they absolutely need to for you know safety and relationships for like you know negotiating with the pharmacy when the pharmacy messes up their meds for like just any number of things right or with an employer
0: that's right that's right
1: empower them with it is totally fine to advocate I, li- I,
0: I like you saying this because, uh, and I just want to make note that we need to stop in a minute. But I, um, but y- you and I talked at one point of there's there's this neurodiversity workbook of DBT skills, and uh, in it, for some reason, the interpersonal skills are, get short shrift. And uh, you you said at the time, well, actually, it seems like the interpersonal skills would be really helpful, and so this is a good example of how uh, they would. It. And, uh, right. I, and I would I, think so too.
1: And I think some people in the neurodiversity community kind of see, and I I know the reason that, I was told that the reason that interpersonal skills were left out of that book was that they didn't want to, that a lot, a lot of folks in the autistic community see DBT as kind of like ABA light, that it's just encouraging masking and so forth. Right, right, right. Um, so I think it's really important to say, yes, these skills are really helpful and we're not at all saying that you just need to use these skills all the time, you know, just to make other people comfortable, right, this is a right, right. tool in your toolbox if it's helpful for like reaching your goal. And we're going to really encourage and advocate, like you said, structuring the environment, structuring relationships, right? Um, I wanted to get like really briefly, I know we have to get off, but a colleague who I was talking to, she does um, neurodiversity affirming couples therapy. And one of the things is that she never expects the couple, the neurodivergent member of the couple to change to change or try harder than the other member of the couple. And mm. she adapts the treatment to be more um, you know, compatible with whatever the communication style is of the neurodivergent member of the couple. And yeah. so I think just this idea that like this is about you helping getting your needs met, but this is not just putting the burden on you for change. I think right.
0: that's right, right, right. Hey, look, we're gonna have to stop and uh I just want to tell my experience of having this conversation with you is that it's just, there's so many places it could go. I think I just feel like, I feel like this has been really interesting. I hope it's been interesting to hear. And and there are many more things to do and say about this topic. Uh, for instance, something that I'd love to have a conversation with you on or off a podcast more about would be, since you've also been a DBT therapist, you know, the various sets of skills And what what is it that works best or what needs to be adapted or what's, you know, what needs to be twisted a little bit or to work better or just understood in a different way when working with uh, neurodivergent and in particular autistic folks. So uh, we didn't we have, get into
1: a lot of those specifics because there are just so many other things to discuss. There's just
0: but, I know there's just uh, so, there, there. so
1: much going on out there.
0: So they're just as everybody just learned in the Academy Awards last night, I forget the name of the movie, but it's everything everywhere all at once or something <laughs> like that. That's sort of what this was like. So, <laughs> so we went so um anyway, thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. I, I'm Absolutely. I, I want to so Charlie I want to encourage people to uh Get to reach out to me and give me feedback or questions or whatever um, about the podcast and about this particular conversation. Uh, you can do that through my website most easily through, a, um, but also place of leaving comments where podcasts are listened to. So uh, thanks again, Amara, and uh, yeah, and 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 everybody have a good week.
1: Thank you okay. so much, Charlie.
0: Yeah. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.